This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. I have noticed some very heated discussions about this topic on social media the last few days. Yeah, I'm looking at you, Janet Brown, because she tagged me in one of her tweets about this and everything in my feed filled up over the last couple of days on this debate. Is it too early for Christmas stuff? So Starbucks stores across Metro Vancouver are un- they're, they're going into holiday mode. Well, pretty much today they're unveiling this year's Christmas themed cups that you can get when you order a drink there. So obviously that's prompted the flood of complaints. This is way too early. We haven't even had Remembrance Day yet for Christmas themed items. So let's do this definitively. Let's do this as part of our hot question of the day. What do you think? Yes, it's too early or no. Bring on Christmas. Let's go to it. So you can vote online, Simi Sarah 980 or at CKNW. Call our buzz line. Keep it nice, people. 604-331-2899. You can email me as well, Simi at CKNW.com. Day seven of the transit strike and what we know right now officially is that sea bus sailings continue to be impacted by this. Another 16 sea bus crossings have been cancelled for today. But could there be other changes coming as well? Now we think the bus services have been running as normal, but we are starting to hear that that could soon feel an impact. Let's get more information on this. Joining us now is Gavin McGarrigal, the Western Regional Director of Unifor. Gavin, thank you for being back here. Yeah, good morning, Simi. All right, so what is going on right now with the state of the situation? Well, I think, you know, Transink and Coast Mountain is uh, continuing to mislead the public. They're putting wild figures out there about uh, about our requests at the bargaining table. And what I'm finding out this morning is is that the 150 spare buses that they supposedly have, that um, about half of them are tied up in overhaul. And I'm hearing I've got sheets in front of me that are showing about 41, 42 pieces of work out of the Vancouver Depot uh, have been cancelled or moved. And I checked their uh, social media and I haven't seen them talking about that. So the impacts are starting to be I'm hearing um, anecdotal reports out of Surrey as well. And I know Poco uh, Garage is running is running low. So, you know, the company's shrugging this off. Tomorrow will be, um, you know, a week of this job action. We've seen, I think it's over 60 CBUS cancellations, and, and they just continue to do the media rounds of blaming the workers. Now, you said that they're exaggerating, but what can you be more specific? What is it in particular that you take umbrage with? Well, again, they're talking about some number, which they say is half a billion dollars, and they're costing it over 10 years, but yet they say the offer on the table is $71 million. So, you know, if you, and of course it's 5,000 workers in the middle of a $7.5 billion expansion, but, you know, they're saying that they're offering around 9.6%, and we're, we're asking around 15 uh, but they're saying that their offers were $71 million, but somehow going up uh, a third to 15% somehow increases it almost 10 times. So we think what they've done is thrown the kitchen sink at every possible cost they can blame uh, on the transit workers, and and they're not actually uh, putting out uh, real facts and figures out there. Okay, so your feeling is that the the bus service is soon going to feel the impacts of this, or is already? I would say it is already. In the Vancouver Depot, there's uh, pieces of work that that I'm looking at sheets right now that have been cancelled on various runs, such as the 22, the 25, the 32, the 41. You know, and because of the frequency in so many buses, the, the public might not necessarily know it. They might just see that the bus is a little bit behind or the frequency isn't as great. Uh, but the, but I think the key thing is is that they're trying to shrug it off as if uh, this is not going to be any impact. And as we've been saying all along, it's going to start to hit and it's going to get worse. And they don't seem to have a plan for ending this other than saying they want to get back to the table but really not changing their position. That's not negotiations. That's just them saying, come in and capitulate and, and we'll have a deal. And our members are very, very clear they're not going to do that. Is there any change on the idea of working with a mediator through this? Well, again, we, we just don't think it would be productive, not because a mediator wouldn't be helpful, but because, you know, it really takes a change in attitude. I mean, I can explain the situation in about four minutes on the radio here. You know, the Toronto Transit workers are paid about three bucks an hour more, and we want to close that gap. The people who work at Skill Trades and SkyTrain uh, are paid about three bucks an hour more than those of Coast Mountain Bus Company. Uh, SkyTrain attendants and CBUS attendants are paid out of whack, and there is no minimum guaranteed break. I mean, they've been talking about recovery time, and the drivers have all this time. The fact is, uh, and they need to be asked this direct question, is there a guaranteed minimum break every day for every driver so that if they don't get it, that there's some kind of penalty? And the simple fact is there isn't. All right. So then what happens now then, Gavin? Is it you're going to continue doing this or has there been any discussion about increasing the job action? 
there's been lots of discussion about increasing it. In fact, we're, we're having to uh, hold back our members because they're getting more and more angry at the comments that they're hearing uh, out there. You know, we heard Mr. McDaniel refer to the bus operators as uh, unskilled workers the other day. Of course, we have a definition for skilled trades, but uh, the bus operators are very, very skilled workers, and so they're extremely angry that the maintenance workers are extremely angry that they won't uh, address uh, the inequities within the system. And the more that they're out there doing it, the more I'm getting calls from our members to say, shut it down now. Uh, so what we're doing is we're trying to reach out to the public to say this is only going to get worse. Yesterday we were down at the SEBA the station. We've launched a new campaign. We have a website, unifor.org slash transit. And people can go to that website and send a message to Mr. McDaniel and Kevin Desmond and, and tell them you know, how much they value the bus service. And we've launched buttons uh, that say, I love transit workers. We've got tens of thousands of buttons and leaflets on order, and just from the reaction last night down at CBUS, I mean, passengers are tripping over themselves to see how they can get a button and how they can send a message of support. So we're asking the public to do that before we escalate, but i got to tell you, Simi, it's hard to hold everyone back because they're getting madder and madder. Now, what about Remembrance Day? We are heading into a significant holiday on Monday. Lots of people use transit to get to Remembrance Day ceremonies. Uh, do you anticipate any changes or disruptions on Monday? No, we're not going to uh, we're not going to do any media, and we're not going to do any escalation on Monday. We're not going to interfere with that holiday at all. We know it's important, um, and uh, you know it'll be status quo. Uh, that's one thing I can definitely rule out. We will not be doing uh, any escalation on Monday. Okay, so then looking ahead, then other than Monday for the week ahead, status quo. No, I can't guarantee that, Simi. Um, I, I can't. Um, you know, I'm getting uh, lots of calls from our members, our leadership. They're getting more and more angry. I don't know. I don't know what the public, uh, what the company strategy is here. If they think that going out there and, and dumping all over the workers and telling them, uh, you know, that they're being greedy, while well, you've got people who make more than the prime minister, out of touch company executives, misleading the public over and over again. I'd like to know what their end game is. We know what our end game is going to be. It's going to be a full shutdown, and um, we want the public to speak out before we get to that stage. Mr. McGarrigal, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thanks again, Simi. That is Gavin McGarrigal, the Western Regional Director of Unifor, kind of the face of the negotiations for bus drivers and maintenance workers who are on strike right now. All right, here's your little bit of good news for today. Gas prices going down. You've heard a bit about this in the news today, and we're talking down quite significantly. Analysts say gas prices will be dropping about 10 cents a litre today and go down again tomorrow, possibly another five cents. So really over the span of a couple of days, we're looking at about a 15 cent per liter drop. Just before the show started today, I had a chance to speak with petroleum analyst Dan McTagg about this, and he told me more. Well, Dan, thank you so much for talking about this. It's so nice to actually be able to talk to you, Dan, when there's good news to tell people about. (laughs) Sammy, I'm usually known as the voice of doom, and no one wants to hear me talk. (laughs) It's usually bad news. but uh, So it's awfully refreshing to be able to say something, not only that's nice as far as prices going down, but uh, historically so. Yeah, okay. What is going on? Why are the prices taking such a dramatic drop? Well, as I mentioned uh, two days ago here at CKW, the price uh, was to drop 10 cents a litre. It did do that this morning. And uh, if you're not happy with that or somehow you think uh, that's not enough, uh, well, then wait till tomorrow because it drops another 5 cents a litre. And all this, of course, is due to uh, a bit of uh, relief, I think, south of the border along the U.S. Pacific coast from Washington State all the way down to the tip of uh, California to Mexico where we've had a number of refinery and pipeline problems that have uh, led to a significant tightness in supply. And so uh, that seems to be behind us now, and uh, it looks like these might be more realistic and stable prices for the foreseeable future. Okay, so you don't, you think it's actually going to stay like this for a little while? Yeah, I mean, look, right now uh, we've been paying prices based on what uh, what's happening uh, in the U.S. Pacific Coast area. Um, that's no longer going to be a factor. We're now going back to what we should normally be seeing as uh, factors driving prices either way, and that's the New York uh, world market for both uh, oil and for gasoline. Uh, So it's a bit of a switch back to uh, the global issue. And, you know, uh, normally at this time of year, prices are pretty stable and usually a little lower. Uh, But, of course, uh, anything can cause them to go in a different direction. Here I'm not talking necessarily geopolitics or problems in the Middle East, uh, the traditional, uh, you know, reasons why we trot out uh, and and prices go up. But things like, for instance, uh, positive news on a trade deal between the United States and China. If that 
comes to be, then, of course, uh, that could rally the markets. A stronger economy means investors and traders may decide, hey, prices should go up again. But for now, it looks like these are going to be the uh, calmer prices, up or down one or two cents a day over the next couple of weeks, perhaps well into the new year. Oh, that would be good news for people. So what do you think we're talking about here? Like a dollar thirty-five or so is what people could expect to see at the pump? Uh, see, I think we're looking at prices that are going to be in the dollar thirty, dollar forty range. Uh, uh, I could be wrong in the dollar forty. Could it go back up to one forty four, one forty three? But of course, tomorrow it drops to one thirty eight point nine. And the good news, I think, for many of us who do shop uh, for fuel, is that we also know that uh, the best time to buy gasoline is in the evenings after six o'clock, when gas stations themselves shed their twelve cent retail margins and offer us uh, gasoline prices that might be eight or nine cents a liter less than what they were in the morning. So I wouldn't be surprised here uh, to see this time tomorrow night, uh, say Friday after 6 p.m., prices moving at or just below $1.30 a litre. It also means that that $1.30, to $1.40 will be sort of the uh, up and down pricing that we're going right. to see uh, going forward and back over the next several weeks. But unless there's, and there's a lot of unforeseeability in this business, but I think right now things are relatively calm. Uh, this is the time of the season when uh, demand uh, doesn't go through the roof. And of course, prices tend to be a little bit more stable, save and except the long weekends, like for instance, uh, the U.S. Thanksgiving holiday. All right, so we'll just cross our fingers, hope that it stays like this. Dan, so nice to talk to you for a good reason for a change. Oh, it's a pleasure. Believe me, in more ways than we can possibly, you can possibly know. Thanks, Jimmy. <laughs> that is Dan McTagg, uh, gas analyst, gas industry analyst, talking about how prices are coming down. The reason he said that, uh, we I talked to him just before we came on the air today. I said, boy, you sound really happy about this. And he said, you know, when the prices go up, he said you wouldn't believe the nasty emails that he gets from people because they blame him. They said because he's always talking about and predicting when gas prices are going up, people think that for some reason he knows something or has some kind of direct conduit to the companies and therefore, you know, he's doing this. Like this one guy is somehow behind gas prices going up and down. And so, yeah, he's very happy to get out there and predict when gas prices are coming down. All right, let's talk about labor disputes in this province, because right now there are quite a few of them that seem to be going on or imminent in any case. We've got the the bus drivers, maintenance workers one. That's a big one, right? Impacts a lot of people and has the potential to impact even more. Uh, we heard today that workers at UNBC, University of Northern BC, also a labor dispute there. We've got some other upcoming negotiations going on with even more workers at TransLink in particular. So what is happening? We still don't have a deal when it comes to the BC Teachers Federation. So what is happening out there? We wanted to get kind of a broader picture of this and the impact on the NDP government. So joining us now is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief in Victoria. Hi, Keith. Hello, Simi. This picture does seem to be getting bigger, doesn't it? It does. There's all these little brush fires out there in the labor scene, and some of them have the potential of erupting into outright infernos, particularly the bus situation. Uh, right now, it's just sea bus cancellations. But if we go back to 2001 and we saw that full-scale walkout that went, lasted 123 days, uh, that's a big problem politically for the John Horgan NDP government. And I'm not sure they can withstand the political heat on that. And then you've got the BC Teachers Federation, which, again, is without a contract. Uh, the mediator reported in uh, to both parties last week. Uh, he doesn't like what he sees. He says there's a fundamental disconnect between the parties that prevents them from settling at the negotiating table. So the NDP could find itself with two huge strikes, one in the transit system, potentially could shut down bus service in all of Metro Vancouver. And secondly, don't discount the possibility of a province-wide teacher strike sometime perhaps in the spring. And both of them would just be gigantic uh, headaches for the for the public, both the traveling public and the public who have kids in school. So these are two major potential uh, real, I think, challenges, to put it in it mildly, for an NDP government to solve if, if the worst-case scenarios play out. Right. Okay. And what is going on here then? Do you think, is it because it's a different government, a different party, that people think, oh, the attitude's going to be different? Well, I certainly think with the BCTF uh, and with uh, the other strike that's flying out is over here at Saanich, the Saanich School District, which is a pretty big school district. And uh, thousands of kids now are in their second week without classes. Uh, Parents are getting a little frantic out there. And that thing 
took a, a turn for the worse yesterday with the union walking away from the table. So I, I do think it's it's heightened expectations from a perceived union-friendly party and government, but I think uh, that doesn't meet the reality of governing. And, and the NDP has shown on a number of occasions that what it said in opposition, because when, you, when, you're, when you're in opposition, you oppose the government and you say things yeah. that you don't necessarily follow through on when you're in government. So in opposition, the NDP was very much on the BCTF side and QP side and on the side of all unions. And now they're in government and it's a different different situation, different set of realities. And uh, they're pretty hard line, as far as I can tell, when it comes to the BCTF teachers federation there's no appetite to give them any more money than what other unions are getting because it could trigger the so-called me too clauses in other union contracts and allow them to get higher wage increases and this is all coming at a time as well when the budget of, under carol james is starting sh- to show some cracks where the economy is softening government revenues are down uh you've got icbc now taking potentially another half billion dollar hit on the government's books and then you throw all these labor disputes into this uh the realities of governing and how hard it is is about to hit home for an NDP government that had a relatively easy way for the first two years in power. Right. So do you, does that look like a rocky road ahead then in dealing with these two big ones in particular? I think the TF1 is a real problem because I just don't see how it's going to be settled at the negotiating table. But the transit one, don't discount the, the, the how big a difference this is between what management is offering and what the union is looking for because the what the union is looking for in terms of the gap between the two represents the money that was supposed to be used and earmarked for transit improvements. And again, politically, this dispute is very important to the NDP because many people in suburban Vancouver, of course, suburban metro, of course, use transit. I mean, bus service is a major issue in Burnaby, Surrey, uh, the Tri-Cities. Guess what? Those are the ridings that the NDP one took from the Liberals and put them in power. If the riding public suddenly is deprived of bus service for a prolonged period of time in these these areas, uh, the chances are they may take their anger out against the government come the next time they get to cast a vote. So there's a lot of nervousness in the NDP right now over where this is headed, because I can see certainly the NDP doing what it would least like to do, which is to impose a contract on both sectors, both the tr- transit sector and the education sector. Uh, the Liberals have done that in the past. The NDP did it a couple times in the 90s. I mean, don't discount the NDP d- doing something like this. But in terms of these two, these would be pretty big moves and major yeah. steps by the NDP. And again, for a party that really believes in the, the right to strike and the collective bargaining process, this would be a, a big challenge, I think, for them to pull off. And what do you think is the biggest challenge then to getting the deal? Is it money? Is that what is keeping the sides apart? Well, it seems to be money in the transit. Well, yeah, on both both uh, issues, I think it's money. The teachers say they're just lagging behind the rest of Canada, and they want a bigger wage increase than uh, than what's on the table, which is two, two, and two. But it's also money in the transit dispute. It's according to to TransLink, it's a six hundred and eighty million dollar gap between the two, which uh, over ten years, which is again represents all these transit improvements that the mayor's council all agreed to. And either if this is funded, it's funded through scrapping these projects and these improvements, or alternatively, raising a host of taxes, which the mayors have been reluctant to do. And one of the 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 differing aspects of the transit dispute, the provincial government is not the direct employer here. It's uh, And that's why Unifor, the union, is not part of the, the negotiating mandate that other unions are, are, are held by, which is 2 plus 2 plus 2%. Right. Percent. That's why trans- uh, the bus company itself is offered up to 12% to maintenance workers, which far exceeds what's being offered uh, public sector unions. But this is a private uh, union that performs public services, and that sort of muddies the right. waters a bit in terms of imposing a contract on them. And so what has been the line then from, I know the Premier has been asked this multiple times, like what, what is the government saying right now about the talks? They're taking a hands-off approach, which is, I think, a smart thing to do. Uh, Horgan was asked directly, are you going to in, intervene? He said, no, not, there's nothing for them to do at this time. Uh, I think he used the phrase at this time, but they have to keep the door open eventually if the bus dispute turns into something much more substantive in terms of public impact than simply sea bus cancellations uh, and people are deprived of bus service. That has an economic impact, a negative one. People can't get to work. There's less economic activity, again, at a time when the 
like everyone's getting a little nervous about the state of its books. Uh, the House has got two more weeks of sitting after next week. Uh, it's conceivable if the union really turns up the heat, you could see something happen this legislative session. I kind of think that's not going to happen. Um, in, in fact, if, if I was the union, I'd say, you know what, we're not going to have a full-scale walkout. We're going to have rotating strikes and go from community to community and put pressure on the employer through that route. But eventually, I can see the window opening for government intervention. Just as we saw in 2001, the Liberals imposed a contract. After the public's had enough of this uh, job action, I think the public sentiment would be to impose a contract. But I don't think we're at that point yet. I think it's still a long ways away from that. All right. We'll see. Keith, thank you. We'll talk about it again, I'm sure. Oh, we will be. That is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief in Victoria. We're talking about labor disputes in the province. As he mentioned, like in the Saanich School District alone, there's a lot of kids. Uh, this is their second week off of school because of a labor dispute. You've got still and very far apart the two sides in the BC Teachers Federation and the government negotiations there. You have got this uh, bus and maintenance workers strike here in Metro Vancouver. Repeatedly, the Premier's been asked, will the government do anything? Will they do anything? And they've said, nope, we're not getting involved. All right, and today on Science with Semi, we're going to be talking about something that is very timely right now, and that is the flu, because flu season is once again upon us, and we're thinking about all sorts of different ways that we can avoid, you know, getting it, essentially. Uh, we've talked about the flu shot. I know that a lot of people have been trying to get the flu shot. There seem to be a little bit slow in supplying some of the pharmacies with that, so there seems to be a bit of a backlog of people waiting to get that. But we wanted to talk not about the flu shot, but about the, the flu itself, like, what is it? I always hear the phrase, oh, so somebody was off for a day or two, they go, oh, I had the flu. And I always think in my head, I don't think you actually had the flu uh, because it is uh, it takes a bit more of a toll than just a couple of days. So we thought, let's talk more about this. So joining us now is Alan Glasser, pharmacist from Mark's Pharmacy, to explain this to us. Hi, Alan. Hi, Zimmy. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. So let's explain this to people. Let's go to flu 101, like the basics on this. What is the flu? So what is the flu? It's a virus-caused uh, disease uh, that everyone, I think, knows the symptoms. Usually uh, starts with kind of runny nose, sore throat. Uh, you may get symptoms of nausea and vomiting and uh, then can progress to diarrhea. Uh, normally, it lasts for four or five days, and unfortunately, in, in the youngest and the oldest of our population, with the weakest immune system, it can cause more serious problems, which can lead to uh, death, unfortunately. You have bacterial infections on top of it. Right. So how do you That's, know that you've got the flu versus just a bad cold or some other bug? Well, typically, if the, the length of time that you've you may have those symptoms, um, you know, nausea, diarrhea, vomiting. If they only last for 24 hours, most likely it was food poisoning, bacteria caused. Mm. Okay. Uh, most commonly that would happen, you know, in the summertime, you get uh, meat that wasn't cooked properly, etc. Those symptoms can happen. But the flu is you get high fevers, right? You're starting to get um, fevers over you know, 100 centigrade, and especially if you're a senior, if your uh, body temperature starts to climb, since we do, that's how our body protects ourselves against this infection of the flu caused by the virus, right. uh, raising body temperature, it's quite normal. Um, when you're younger, you can tolerate 103, 104 degrees with no problem. As you age, uh, it's rare to get up that high. And that's how our body kills off the flu naturally. So lots of fluids, you know, conventionally, um, I suggest lots of vitamin C to help your body's immune system uh, to help treat those symptoms. Right. And, of course, you treat the symptom of nausea and vomiting with um, whatever's over the counter. Imodium is one for the diarrhea and, you know, traditionally gravel. But uh, it, it sounds vomiting. like it sounds like Ellen though, like you can take stuff just for to treat the symptoms. But is there anything you can actually take that will help you shorten the duration of the flu? There's one prescription drug called Tamiflu. Uh, it'll shorten it by one day. That's it. It's uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> the government is, would supply that to uh, particular populations. I know we have that in for patients in nursing homes. They can get on it right away. But that has been 
the prescription one, it only shortens it by a day. Instead of five days, it's four. Uh, so it, it all depends if you want to take that because there's always potential side effects. Right. Do the key is prevention, though. Ah, okay. Right? So how do we prevent it? You, you prevent it by getting the flu shot. Now, interesting enough, um, the flu shot causes our immune system to be sensitive to uh, the best guess of the flu virus that are coming to visit us this flu season. Uh, it works in approximately 80% of the time if you're uh, in good shape. Uh, they've actually seen, and especially teenagers, teenagers who eat junk food, only a 40% response. So, again, you want to eat healthier, keep your immune system healthy. Okay, because that's I've heard that over and over and over again, Alan, as people go, well, I got the flu shot, but I still got the flu, so it's useless. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> the stats are in. It will help you if you, uh, you know, uh, are in good, your immune system is in good shape. Uh, as we age over 65, uh, there are uh, more expensive uh, flu shots that are stronger, that work better in seniors, but the government doesn't provide those at no charge. Because you can get a flu shot at no charge through, you know, any pharmacy or public health unit uh, because we want to prevent the flu and the consequences of it. Right. If you want to get the best protection, that'll cost if you're over 65. Now, what about all of the, like, washing of your hands and all the disinfectants and all that? We see a lot of advertisements for that at this time of year, too. Well, that's that's the other way to prevent it. It absolutely is, is crucial. It's mostly transferred from our hands. When you touch your you know, nose or mouth, you can get infected. So washing your hands uh, before you eat, before you touch your nose, mouth, or even eyes, uh, you're going to decrease your risk of infection. If those standard things still work, soap and water. Right. So we just don't do enough of that at this time of year? Like, why does it all of a sudden show up now and then cause so many problems? The thoughts are in that because we're in more close proximity of each other because it's cold outside and more people gather together inside. That's one of the theories. Okay. So if we wash our hands well and get the flu shot, is that the best protection essentially that we could provide for ourselves? Yes, and hopefully support your body's immune system by uh, eating right. Eating right. You're saying no junk food? Come on. That's hard at this time of year, Alan. This is like the season to eat bad stuff. It's just been Halloween, too. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately, they've they've done some studies, and they're looking at when you eat junk food, it does lower your body's immune system. So we're just like prime candidates. We are targets, essentially, at this time of year. Yes, we are. It's it's Christmas and holidays and, you know, Halloween, and we're eating all this junk food that yeah, it tastes great, but seems to lower immune system response. And what is the supply like at right now for your pharmacy? What's it like in, of the flu shot? Is it easy to get? Uh, yeah, we just picked some up this week. Uh, we have about 40, 30, 40 shots available. We just place the order and pick it up as needed with uh, public health. Okay, can anybody take this? Like, what about people who have autoimmune diseases, It's like MS or something like that? I had an email from someone who was asking that. Can anybody get the flu shot? Yes. There are certain restrictions. Uh, well, well, see, people even with can- who have cancer or have past history of cancer, they are eligible for the flu shot. You don't have to. Normally, you have to be over 65, under um under five and then or be around people of that age to get a flu shot but if you have diabetes and heart disease and all these other uh, medical conditions would increase your risk the flu shot publicly funded is also free okay listen thank you so much for this info alan we really appreciate it okay you're welcome to me that is alan glasser pharmacist from mark's pharmacy helping us out with the kind of flu 101 the things that you need to know at this time of year so Best best advice I would say is like wash your hands often, right? Clean up, make sure uh, you get the flu shot there. I know lots of people have been trying to get that uh, and just remember the things to look after yourself. We are talking about dinosaurs. You've probably seen this story in the news. We wanted to learn more about it. Some fossils that were found 50 years ago or so here in BC have now been recognized as a new species of dinosaur that roamed the province more than 67 million million years ago. Joining us now for more on this is Victoria Arbor, the Curator of Paleontology at the Royal BC Museum. Victoria, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is very 
very exciting. Yeah, I mean, I like dinosaurs, so I think it's pretty exciting, too. <laughs> I'll bet you do. Now, tell us about the original find. Yeah, so the specimen was found uh, in 1971 by a geologist who was working along the, at the time, in construction BC rail line up in this part of northern British Columbia along the Sustut River. And uh, he was looking for, like, deposits of economically valuable minerals and stumbled across this really cool dinosaur fossil instead. Okay, and so what, did, what, did, what happened to it at that point? Yeah, so he recognized it as being something pretty interesting. Um, it took a couple of years for it to make its way into a museum where it could be studied by researchers like myself. Um, and then the specimen is a little bit fragmentary. So it's taken me and my colleague David Evans um, a couple of years to really figure out exactly what kind of dinosaur it is and figure out whether or not we were looking at a skeleton of an existing species or something that was new. Okay, can you explain that process to us? Like, how did you do that? Yeah, so part of it just comes with having a lot of familiarity with uh, dinosaur anatomy and the anatomy of lots of different animals. Um, and we, what we also did was several uh, visits to various museum collections across North America to compare our particular specimen with other species that we thought were closely related to it. And so did you look and go, nope, didn't, couldn't find anything? Yeah, well, actually, that's kind of the fun thing. So we, we certainly found some features that were um, shared between our specimen and its close relatives. So that helped us pinpoint the group of dinosaurs it belongs to, the leptoceratopses, these kind of little cousins of triceratops. But then we started to notice that we're, there were some really subtle differences, things like the proportions of the toes and the proportion of the arm to the hind leg that made it not really fit into any of the species that had been described before. Okay, so then what do we know about this species? Yeah, so what we know is that um, Ferrosaurus was a relatively small dinosaur, about sort of the size of a pig or a sheep. Um, we don't have the skull, but based on comparisons with its close relatives, it would have had kind of a parrot-like beak, um, and it would have looked a little bit like if you took a triceratops and then took away most of the frill and the horns on the face. Okay, um, so it's sort like of a weird horn-less triceratops. It sounds like a very <laughs> weird dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, they're a very rare group of dinosaurs overall, so it's pretty surprising that of all the random finds that you might have in British Columbia that we would get a leptoceratopsid dinosaur. Okay, and how do we know that this was just in B.C.? Well, right now we know it's just in BC because we only have one specimen of it, but maybe future finds in Alberta or Montana will show us that um, Ferrosaurus actually had a broader uh, home range than we think right now. So, Victoria, you kind of shaken up the paleontology world with this. <laughs> well, I think that it's, it's sort of a nice progression. So we know that the BC has a really rich fossil record, and we know that there have been some dinosaurs found up in the Tumblr Ridge area. So this is really just kind of emphasizing the role that BC has in dinosaur paleontology, we now have a unique species that's found only in BC, and we know that there's a lot more potential for finding dinosaur fossils up in this sort of north-central region of BC, north of Smithers. Okay, do you think this will kind of spur more finds then? Because now that we're looking for it, we know this is out there, more people will be interested. I certainly hope so. Uh, one of the challenges is that uh, this part of British Columbia is very remote and very rugged, and it's very difficult to access uh, potential field sites. But uh, last summer, I led an expedition up into Spatsizi Plateau Wilderness Provincial Park up near Dee Lake to look for more dinosaurs, and we were successful. So we're still working on figuring out exactly what they are, um, and we are intending to go back next summer. So it's certainly spurring me right. and the Royal BC Museum to uh, increase our search efforts in these sort of hard-to-access areas. And what did you find up there? So we, we found uh, mostly fragments. We found some pieces of ribs and maybe some limb bones of some meat-eating dinosaurs. Um, unfortunately, right as we started to find really cool things, we had a whole bunch of snow dumped on us oh. um, and had to call off the rest of our search. So we're very excited about returning next summer uh, and seeing what other uh, sort of buddies for our Ferrosaurus dinosaur we can find up there. <laughs> Victoria, what are we learning? Like in recent years, I know, you know we've opened up a whole new world of learning about dinosaurs, but what do we learn about their movement, where they were found, where they weren't found? What's new in that? Oh, there's, there's so much it would be hard to summarize. I think what's really cool is we're living in kind of a golden age of dinosaur discoveries. There's a lot of people sort of my age who grew up with Jurassic Park that are now entering the workforce and <laughs> yeah. doing research um, and exploring areas that aren't sort of your, your sort of classic dinosaur localities like in Montana and Alberta. And there's certainly still many important discoveries coming out of those places too. But there's lots of eyes on the ground and lots of people doing really cool work, using new technology, um, and working together to find out new things about dinosaurs. Are you telling me 
that the movie Jurassic Park had that much of an impact on a generation? It it truly did. Yeah. So like people watching it go, I want to do that for a living and they do end up doing that for a living? I think so. Or I think what it showed was that it wasn't a weird thing to go do. So I think lots of kids like dinosaurs and then to see um, sort of a high profile movie like that with paleontologists, um, I think inspired a lot of people to keep trying. Yeah, but what about the bad stuff? So people aren't trying to do that other stuff in Jurassic Park, are they? Uh, well, that I'm less sure about, but I like the old-fashioned <laughs> stuff where we go and find dinosaur fossils. <laughs> okay, so what's next for you? You said you're going back up to BC. What else would you like to do? Uh, so that's really one of my big interests right now is just trying to, like, find out more about the dinosaurs of BC. We know so little. There's so much left to explore, and that's really what I'm interested in, um, building up the collection at the Royal BC Museum. I'd also like to just point out that um, if you are in the Victoria area and you want to stop by the Royal BC Museum, you can actually see Ferrosaurus on display right now until the end of February in the museum's pocket gallery, which is free and open to the public. Cool. Okay. I would love to do that. Uh, did we think, Victoria, do you, up until now that, oh, well, dinosaurs, only certain dinosaurs were in certain places? Yeah, and that's definitely true. Like, different dinosaurs are are, are sort of unique to certain parts of the world. Um, and so, yeah, just new discoveries like this really just help us flesh out, like, what their ranges were, how they moved between different places, and how they changed over time. Okay, so when somebody makes a discovery, like your team has, that this is so unique in the world of paleontology, what happens with that? Is that something that, like, do you publish in papers? What happens? Yeah, exactly. So today marks the day that uh, Ferrosaurus gets sort of officially named in the scientific literature. So that means you, we've sort of written up a paper describing the fossil and making the argument that it's a new species. It's gone through the peer review process where other scientists looked at it and said whether or not they agreed with us. Um, and now that it's published, um, the public can read it for free. It's in an open access journal, Peer J, so they can see it for themselves. And other scientists can read the paper or come to the museum and study it for themselves as well. Okay, and where does the name come from? So Ferrosaurus means the iron lizard, and that's in reference to it being found along this railway line back in the 1970s. Cool. And then Sustutensis is for the river it was found next to, the Sustut River, and also the Sustut Basin, which is kind of this geological feature in North Northern BC, where we are hoping to find even more dinosaur fossils. Oh, that is so cool. Okay, so just to reiterate that, Victoria, if people want to see this, what do they have to do? They should come visit the Royal BC Museum and look for it in the pocket gallery until the end of February. We will do that. Victoria, thanks so much. Thank you very much. That is Victoria Arbor, the curator of paleontology at the Royal BC Museum. All right, let's talk about patient safety in Canada. We tend to think, hey, we've got this great healthcare system. Yeah, it's got its problems, but overall, it's great. Well, not great for everybody because there are some kind of signs of concern on the horizon. We're going to talk about those now, particularly on the issue of patient safety. Joining us now is show contributor Claire Allen. Hi, Claire. Hey, Simi. What are we talking about? So we're talking about patient care in regards to surgery okay. and sort of like patient outcomes. So how people recover after they have had some kind of surgery. Yeah. And I was thinking like it is inevitable that at some point in all of our lives, either we will undergo surgery or we will care for someone who recovers from surgery. Right. True. And I think we can all agree surgery is very scary and that we all want the best possible outcome for ourselves and for our loved ones. So I spoke with Christina Lawland. She's a senior researcher with, health, with um, the Health Systems Analysis and Emerging Issues with the Canadian Institute of Health uh, Information. And she told me that every two years, CAIHAI, which is the organization she works for, updates Canada's OECD International Comparisons uh, e-tool. OECD stands for Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. And they have this e-tool that allows you to see how Canada compares to other developed countries. Okay. So CAIHAI decided... Instead of focusing on like economy, housing, stuff like that, let's focus on patient safety and how our country compares to other developed countries. Okay, I have a feeling there were some concerns that came as a result of this. Well, at first, Simi, I'm going to bring you the good news. Okay, let's start with the good news. She told me that Canada is doing well in multiple areas when it comes to patient care. 
When you look at things like uh, cancer care, we see that there are more Canadians who are surviving cancer than, than people in other countries uh, for things such as breast cancer. So 88% of women uh, who are diagnosed with breast cancer will still be alive in five years, and that's m- much better than most other countries. Uh, for things like prevention, we do a better job of providing a flu vaccine to our seniors than most people in other countries. And uh, Canada does better in some aspects of healthy living, like we smoke less, we report eating more fruits and vegetables, and overall, we report being healthier and feeling healthier than most people in most other countries. Okay, well, that's very good. Great news, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, Everything is great, now. except for there is another side oh, to the information that they found. So according to Kaihai, the OECD International Comparison e-tool found that Canada performed below the international average in four out of five patient safety indicators. And Simi, one of the areas that needs improvement is quite disturbing. For one of those indicators in particular, it's on foreign objects left behind after surgery. And that is something that should never be occurring. But we found that between 2016 and 2018, more than 550 uh, patients uh, receiving surgery had a foreign object, such as a sponge or an instrument, uh, left behind after surgery. Ew, Claire. I know. So gross. What a nightmare to have a foreign instrument left inside of you after surgery. And what's quite alarming is that the information they collected, it showed that the rates of these foreign objects being left behind in patients after surgery has increased by 14% across Canada over the past five years. Um, So we're getting worse at this. Yeah. And I just, it really makes me quite queasy when I think about it. I can tell by the look on your face. So as disturbing as this information is, which... It really is. Uh, Christina told me that Canadians should pat ourselves on the back because, silver lining, at least we make a record of our medical mistakes. Sadly, this isn't the case for other developed countries, and that fact actually makes it hard for us to compare ourselves. Basically, we do see that Canada is behind uh, about 12 other countries that are reporting this measure. However, it's important to note that our usual peer countries that we compare ourselves to, and I'm thinking of countries like the United States, like uh, the UK, France, Australia, and none of these countries are able to collect this data and report on this indicator. So we can't really compare ourselves to them. And what this tells us is that Canada does a really, really good job of collecting data, systematically across the country to be able to report these incidents and we have a culture of transparency so we're not trying to hide these things we are you know reporting them and making them public which is great uh, on on the negative side however it is a bit concerning to see that these numbers have increased over time in Canada and uh, also these are the types of events that are considered never events this means they should never happen uh, so regardless Regardless of whether we could compare ourselves to our peers, uh, these events shouldn't be shouldn't be happening at all. Okay, I have to say though that did make me feel a little bit better because yeah, it's bad, but we don't know if we're actually better than everybody else because nobody else keeps track. Yeah, and there is something to be said about the fact that we're being transparent with our mistakes and letting people know that you know they do happen at what seems to be an alarming rate, an increasing rate. Um, but what I thought was really interesting is that, you know, Christina described this issue of foreign objects being left behind in patients after surgery as a never event. Yeah, so it should when, never happen. So when I was talking to her, I was like, who cares what the other people, what other countries are doing? We should just compare ourselves with ourselves and make sure we get to zero on with this incident, like year after year. We shouldn't be seeing a 14% increase. We shouldn't even be worried about what's going on in other countries. Well, that's a good point, Claire. If patients in Canada are having <laughs> instruments left in them after surgery, well, let's just focus on that problem. <laughs> that's a good point. Yes, we yes. should do that. So disturbing. Um, and another issue that was highlighted by Kai Hai was Canada's rates of avoidable complications after surgery, such as lung clots after hip or knee surgery. And actually what they found found is that Canada is reporting 90% higher than the OECD average. I just say this is another indicator where we don't have as many countries reporting as we would like, and some of our usual comparators aren't there either. But on the other hand, uh, yeah, this is an area, um, a lung clot is something that is potentially 
potentially avoidable. It can't necessarily be avoided 100% of the time, but there are certain best practices that could be put in place to try to prevent these things from happening. And as we know, these are very scary incidents and can even be fatal. So uh, it is it is preoccupying to see that uh, Canadian patients are 90% more likely to suffer from a blood clot after a hip or knee surgery. However, the good news there is that when we look at where we were uh, about five years ago, things are moving in the right direction. So it is getting lower over time, and that's good news. See, there you go, Claire, more good news. So that's good news, but the instruments being left inside people is increasing. So still... (laughs) I'm still looking back at that information and shaking my head. Um, So with all the data that was collected, I was just wondering what the main takeaway from Kai Hai's report is for health professionals and health authorities. So Christina told me that this is what Kai Hai would like everyone, patients included, to take away from this data. I think it's important to look at these numbers and especially how they... uh, fluctuate over time because we know international comparisons aren't always perfect, that people collect things slightly differently and that can make a difference in how you see the results. But when we see, uh, you know, gaps between our results and those of other countries uh, that are wide and that are remaining wide over uh, a long period of time, then we get a bit more concerned. And uh, so it's kind of a, a, a reminder and a little bit of a wake-up call to see what's going on uh, in your own region, in your own hospital, in your own area, and, and try to, uh, you know, address the problem. So I guess what's so interesting to me about all of this, Claire, is that's like the first time they've done this. They just decided to, well, let's just change a little bit and take just a look take at a, this over here. Yeah, take a closer look. Like I said, this tool is something they they um, explore or update every two years, but this time they wanted to take a closer look at these issues. So it's pretty interesting because, um, as she said, a lot of the mistakes that we're making do can have fatal consequences. Yeah. So um, it's very interesting to see what they found. And I mean, there is some good news in there, like with the lung clots, that that is decreasing. But there is some bad news too. That uh, You can't let that go, can you? Can you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, knock wood, you and I are not scheduled for surgery no. anytime soon. So if you are, I guess that's something you would want to talk to your doctor about. And I would love to know, like we were talking about um, while the mics were off, is that like, shouldn't there be some sort of protocol in place for like dealing with the instruments? That's what I was wondering. Don't they count them? Don't you they? You know, like do- when you have like a tool, like a toolbox, and you have to snap the tools back in. Yeah. Like, what? Well, maybe they should do that with the, with the instruments. I think you're onto something, Claire. Look at the look at the oh, toolbox. There's afterwards. something missing yeah. in that spot right there. Right. Yeah, I think you're onto but something. But being a doctor is a very difficult job, and I'm sure when they explain this, you know, it's not a job that I could do, and I don't want to pass judgment, but I would not like a tool well, left inside of me. I actually think you are. But anyway, <laughs> <All right. laughs> thanks for that, Claire. Thanks, Amy. That is Claire Allen, our show contributor, with some uh, very interesting new numbers from the Canadian Institute for Health Information that there's good news and bad news there, that when it comes to surgeries, we're not doing all that great. Turns out far too many incidents of foreign objects being left behind in patients after surgery. They said that actually increased by 14% across Canada over the past five years. And no matter how low you think that number is, they actually classify that as a never event, meaning it should never happen. My goodness, I just love this next story. Now, it could have been our winner of the day, but we really wanted to take some time with this and talk about it because you just don't hear about something like this happening every day. Lots of us go out to eat at restaurants, right? You have a nice evening. They don't often end up like this. Now, I'm going to let them tell the story. I have two guests here with me. I have Joanne Lomas. Hi, Joanne. Hello. I have Eli Brennan. Hi, Eli. Hello. We're going to get to you in a moment, but we're going to start with Joanne. Joanne, a week ago today... You went out for dinner at the Water Street Cafe. The Water Street Cafe, there was a, um, a costume party. Okay. As well as uh, entertainment and a murder mystery. Of course, it was Halloween. Yes, oh, it was perfect. Oh, it was perfect. Tell me about the evening. How did it go? Well, from what I remember, it, the start of it was fairly good. We had some champagne to greet us. We went upstairs, and I started to choke. Oh, what were you eating? What, what were you choking on? I, I just Don't ate remember. something and went it just went down way. the wrong way and I, I just couldn't clear and then I couldn't breathe in or out. And my friend, I went over to see my friend and I was kind of uh, using my hands to tell just him there was something it. wrong. 
And then he stepped in and tried to uh, give me the Heimlich and it didn't uh, quite work. And then Eli Aha. was called up and he got me breathing again after a few minutes. Okay, let's now you don't remember very much of it. So nope. what you're telling me is you know that's what you've been told. Yes. Eli, you step in here now and tell me. So Joanne is choking in the restaurant. When yes. and you are the owner of the Water Street Cafe. You're checking out, making sure everybody's having a good time. When did you realize that there was something wrong? Well, I was actually down on the main level on the first floor, and Joanne was up on the second floor, and someone came down and grabbed me and said, there's someone choking in the in the fireplace room, one of our private rooms. And uh, so I rushed upstairs, and I just jumped in and started to help uh, Joanne to get over that. And did, were you giving her, like, the Heimlich maneuver? Because it sounds like it, it was really lodged in there. It was. So first I gave her the Heimlich maneuver. She then passed out and, and oh, uh, no. went to the ground. Um, so I continued to give the Heimlich, and I also opened up her mouth and, and removed the blockage and moved her tongue out of the way. You went above and beyond. I think hopefully we all would. I, I would like to think so too, but that's where the story gets a little more interesting. It was murder mystery night. Yes. So how, how does that play into how people were reacting to this medical emergency? Well, in the evening, uh, the setup was there's about six actors going through the room and they were playing out a murder mystery and everybody needed to figure it out. Um, so there was about 20 people around us and they thought we were part of the show. So they were taking photos and, uh, you know, oh, kind of looking no, at us. Oh, no, no. Yeah. So, so you're choking, Joanne. I'm on, the, I'm on the ground and I apparently took Eli down with me and people were thinking we were both the part show. of the show. No. Taking pictures of us, probably uh, Facebooking their friends. And going, wow, this murder mystery show is unreal. So realistic, yes. Oh, so people didn't actually step in to help because they thought it was the show. Correct. Oh, okay. So you were unconscious at this point. So Eli, when did people realize... Oh, man, this is not part of the show. Um, I verbalized to them pre- quite quickly oh, that, <laughs> that they need to call 911 and start assisting. So, And uh, did they feel bad after that? Yeah, I mean, a few of them still thought it was part of the show. and then It's a, a few heck of, of a show you guys bad. put yeah. on there. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> so has anything like that ever happened before to you? No, definitely not. Wow, so you just knew instinctively to jump in there and do that. Well, taking training on that, of course, you know, so that in those situations we know what to do. So, Joanne, you obviously went to hospital, right? No. No? No. I continued to party afterwards with the rest of the group. Yes, I did. (laughs) You are a trooper. No, he saved me and no no after effects. Uh, If he weren't there, I would would not be here. So, wait a minute. Let me get this straight then. So, you wake up Mm -hmm. and now you can breathe again. Yep. And you're like, what happened? They explain it to you and you said, party on? She said, where's my wine? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> Joanne, you look a little chastened by that. You yes. <laughs> but you know, you got into contact with us because you also wanted to make sure why? What is it that you wanted to make sure? Well, I wanted to make sure that people are aware of helping people that are in distress like myself and have the training for it and have somebody step forward like Eli. And do you to think the problem me. is that some people might freeze? I they don't might- want to be involved. You know, so that was really amazing. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for Eli. Yeah, is there something you wanted to say to Eli then? Well, I can't thank him enough. Thank him. And We've been hugging a lot today. Oh, Have and you? Yeah. and his the people at, at the Water Street Cafe are just were wonderful for to me as well. Afterward, yes. Uh, Eli, is this a good lesson for employers as well about it having is. that training? Yeah, it is. I've already started looking into training the rest of the team uh, because the feeling after was worry and. You know, also just thankful that I was able to be that person to jump in there. Um, and I want to make sure others have that too. So you're going to make sure then that everybody is trained up to properly do this? Definitely. Now I feel like I need to brush up on this training as well because you never know. Uh, Joanne, thank you so much for telling your story today. Well, thank you for having me here. And I admire your spirit in getting going on this. <laughs> thank you. And thank you. Like, congratulations. Thank you. Great job, guys. Uh, what, what a great story, right? You'd like to think that if something happens, you're in a health emergency, a scare like that, that somebody will step in and help you, even if there is a murder mystery that is going on right at that moment.